Let's, uh, let's um, go to the Word of God now, and um, why don't we stand, and uh, we're going to read from Psalm 138, uh, <coughs> and um, please uh, hear the Word of the Lord, the true Word of the Lord, um, God's holy Word, His precious Word, and uh, here is Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exult for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will they sing, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the, the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You may be seated. May God bless his word, and we thank him for it. <clears throat> uh, join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, we give you thanks, and we give you praise, and uh, you are a great God. Uh, your grace is amazing. Lord, um, we bless you. We declare that you are good. You are holy and just. Lord, you've blessed us with so much. Lord, help us to um, be a thankful people, being thankful for both the good and the challenging in our life. As we know your promise, you use, you use even hard things in our life for your purpose in our lives. Dear God, we thank you for um, our families. Thank you for this church. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for our work. We thank you for our homes. We thank you for providing for us. Thank you for um, the school we go to and the work you've given us. Lord, um, we are reminded that... Um, that we are not holy as you are, and we are not righteous as you are, and we do not have pure motives, and we do not have pure hearts. Dear God, we fall, we fall far from that mark, and we are sorry, and uh, we want to do better, and we are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, my sins. Dear God, we, um, we pray uh, that... Um, your Holy Spirit will work in the lives, our lives and the lives of our country and the lives of people to help uh, convict us of sin so that we might repent and turn. <clears throat> Lord, um, there are many things that we have on our heart that we, um, we want to be reminded to pray for and we want to be reminded that, um, that we want your will to be done, and we want you to be glorified. We uh, have a business meeting today. We pray that um, that um, the life of this church 
would be a blessing and uh, would be glorifying you. Lord, may this church uh, run in such a way that um, it is, um, it is uh, beneficial and um, useful to your kingdom. Lord, uh, we pray for um, the ministries of this church. Pray for uh, our school. Lord, there are many that um, may not know you in the school, uh, families uh, that are not, um, are not trusting you, are not part of your kingdom. Lord, may, we, um, may uh, the school be a tool to use to reach uh, Orville and these families. Lord, we pray for uh, Celebrate Recovery. We thank you for um, those who lead that. Dear God, thank you that uh, they are there to help people who are enslaved to uh, sin, to help them find uh, freedom and, um, and trust in you. Lord, we thank you for that ministry. We thank you for um, the work of the deacons and deaconesses, the trustees, and uh, the elders, the pastors. Lord, we are aware of people who we love that are <coughs> not doing well. We, have, um, we all know people that we love that are uh, sick discouraged, we pray for them, Lord, uh, may you comfort them, we have heard that uh, Gary Stanzik is sick and may be hospitalized, Lord, may you be with him, Bert Binion, I mean uh, Nancy Binion, comfort uh, Nancy's husband, Bert, <coughs> Phil Peterson, again, we all know many people, we pray for those people, you might be faithful to encourage and pray for them. Lord, we thank you for the way you've provided for this church. We thank you for the offering. May we be wise as we use it to your own glory. We pray for the sermon today. We thank you for the teaching of God's word. We thank you for how you have, you have, um, you've made um, Pastor Greg uh, have great talents and, and uh, skills at uh, presenting your word. May our ears be open and our understandings to, um, to hear your truth. And Lord, uh, may you change us. Lord, we want um, the strength to do what's right, but Lord, we want to be changed. Lord, we need to be changed. We want to be people that are more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we need that uh, miracle of your spirit working in our lives to change us, to change what we love and change what we desire, to change <clears throat> what is important to us. Dear God, change us. We want to be changed. And um, we, um, we want our capacity to love those around us at work, our families, our capacity to love, forgive, put up with, forbear with people, that uh, you would give us love for each other, love for our neighbors. Lord, we pray all these things now in uh, your wonderful son, Jesus Christ's name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as our children are dismissed to their classes... And as we prepare to sing one more uh, song before our pastor comes and brings the message, um, if you read through the Old Testament, you see shadows, you see types of Christ, things that are pointing us to who Christ is going, who, who, who the coming Messiah is. Um, we see pe people like Adam, Isaac, Moses, and David that are pictures of Christ, but they're not complete pictures. And so as we get to into the gospel of Matthew, that's one thing Matthew's going to point us to, and his pastor's been leading us through, and as we'll see even today, 
Christ is the true and better of all of those pictures and types. So would you stand as we sing that this morning, Christ the true and better. Christ the true and better Adam, son of God and son of man, who tempted in the garden, never yielded, never sinned, he who makes the many righteous brings us back. the true and better Isaac, humble son of sacrifice, who would climb the fearful mountain, there to offer up his life, laid with faith upon the altar, God is joy of his son, their salvation was provided. In our place he bled and conquered, crowned him Lord, the majesty he shall be. the story is the glory hallelujah 
Well, good morning, everyone. What a delight to once again be in the house of the Lord. And even as we have just been introduced to a new song that talks about how it all points to Christ, how we look forward one day to just being at his feet and just praising these songs back to him and a million billion years from now we'll be amazed that we'll be in his presence and we've only just begun and how wonderful it'll be to be in the presence of the one to whom it all points, Christ the story, his the glory, hallelujah. Amen. Please be in prayer for several families in our church. Uh, Brother Mark already referred to some of them, but this has been a challenging week with hospital visits when we could get in. Otherwise, lots of phone calls to families as just one of those times in a church family's life where we're seeing several saints struggling, and we just want to continue to pray and support those families. Uh, we'll do our best as the church office to continue to send out updates as we hear about what's happening with these families, but uh, pray for the Binions, the Petersons, the Stanzas, the Houstons, as they go through various challenges. In fact, why don't we just stop and pray just briefly for those families before we continue. Father, we're reminded this morning that you are ultimately the God of all comfort. You're the God of great mercy. You're the God who hears our cries. So, Father, we stand in the gap this morning on behalf of these loved ones who are facing very difficult situations. And we thank you that we can entrust them into your care. We thank you that you have promised to be with them. And we ask for the comforting grace of your spirit to be with family members as they worry about and pray for sick family members. For our dear ones that are in various states of illness and unable to be in contact with those outside, Father, as only you can, would you be comforting their spirits, giving strength and hope in their minds of the inheritance that they have in Christ and of your presence with them. We pray for wisdom for the medical care and the staff that is attending to them. But Father, we recognize that we need your help as a church family on behalf of these individual families, and so we commend them into your care. We invite your hand of blessing on them, we pray. Amen. Pastor Paul Yowell tells of a captain of a ship who was staring out into the darkness of the night one night and saw faint lights appearing in the distance. So immediately he gave the order to his signalmen to send a message, alter your course 10 degrees south. And promptly a return message came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain became quite angry. Who would dare ignore his command? Who did he think he was? So he sent a, a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. And soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. Now the captain is really outraged. How could someone who is inferior obey a direct order? So immediately the captain sent another message, knowing it would invoke fear. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm the captain of a battleship. And the reply came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm the operator of the lighthouse. In the midst of our 
dark and foggy days, there are voices crying out from all over in the darkness of the night, trying to tell us what we should do, how we should adjust our lives, what we should be using our lives for. But in the cacophony of those voices, there is ultimately only one who sends a signal that we are to follow. And we ignore it at our peril. But thankfully, that voice happens to be the light of the world. And he is glad to speak to his children through his written word. So far in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, all sorts of voices have appeared and we've recognized, wait, 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 wait. We follow the path that the Lord promised oh so long ago. And so several weeks ago, we began a, a series entitled The King Has Come. And we've seen already in the first couple of chapters of Matthew that the battle between light and darkness is all throughout the situation. As the arrival of the Son of God comes into Bethlehem, the one who will be the Savior, the one who will be the King. And so it was that King Herod sought to kill the child, and so Joseph flees to Egypt with his family. And this set up under the providence of God, the fulfillment of prophecy. And last week we saw that John the Baptist was raised up by God to be the forerunner, to be the announcer of the Lord. And fulfilling the promise of the prophet Isaiah, John warns the people to flee the wrath that is to come, to repent of their sins. We're saying a new day is arriving with the coming of the Messiah. And so there's words of judgment ringing in the ears of the hearers as they gather on the shores of the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness. And suddenly, the one about whom John has been speaking, the one to whom the rest of the story points, shows up at the river's edge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is this morning that we will look at the baptism of Jesus and see the importance of this event as Jesus retraces and fulfills the steps of the people of Israel who had failed at every step along the way, whereas Jesus will fulfill all that the Father commanded. And that is to our good and to our everlasting gain. But if you're able one more time, I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning in the gospel according to, to Matthew Chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, reading down to verse 17. And the holy word of God says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let us pray. Father, as we've read your word this morning, would you now turn our hearts towards the listening of that word and the hearing for understanding? And so would you be the one that in the midst of a cacophony of voices that would pull us in one direction, would you cause those distractions to be banished that would pull our hearts in the direction of your word and follow the light that has come to shine the pathway to truth. Teach us this morning, Father, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. 
coming. Please be seated. Now, there are many points in our outline this morning. You've already undoubtedly noticed that, and I just want to let you know ahead of time, we will move through them fairly quickly. It's just to give it like a teaching outline on what is happening here. But our first major point is intention and confrontation. Intention and confrontation. John the Baptist has been preparing the people. He's been teaching them. He's been baptizing them. And we saw that this was a baptism of purification, a baptism of preparation, that it involved both Jews and Gentiles who were coming, who recognized their need to forsake the old way of living because there was a new way that was coming in the Messiah. And as John was baptizing them, he was warning the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we talked about repentance last week, this change of the mind that results in the change of the heart that ultimately changes the attitude and the actions. It, it's an ongoing process of becoming more like Christ, turning away from the old, turning towards the new. So John is warning the people about the fiery judgment to come and the one who is to come. And so as we imagine John down by the riverside and he's preaching and people are, are being baptized is it possible that Jesus was already on the way? Can he hear the voice of John the Baptist booming through the wilderness and the canyon walls? Because they would have had to go down to get to the riverside in that part of the Judean wilderness. Could the one who was coming hear the message that was being proclaimed of one who was a greater baptizer, who would bring a greater baptism, leading to the judgment of eternal separation from those who were believing the promises of God and those who had rejected them. I think the grammar of our text makes it very possible that the one who is coming to bring the kingdom of heaven was coming at that time and now arrives at the Jordan River. Now, John, for his part, as we saw last week, was expecting some type of dramatic entrance of the Messiah. He still had in his mind that there would be this violent overthrow of the Roman Empire, of the oppression, that there would be the final judgment and fire and vindication. He's waiting for a conquering warrior. That's why later on he's disillusioned about the ministry of Jesus. He had a different expectation of the Messiah. And in fact, he had missed the fact that the Messiah was coming to deal with sin and judgment in a different way and will come again one day for the final judgment of sin. But he had the same expectation that many Jewish people had in the first century. But instead of a fiery judgment, what do they see? They see that Jesus came by design. And our text tells us that then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized with him. You can almost picture it, can't you, in this wilderness scene, this lonely figure coming from the poor and insignificant region of Galilee, where Jesus would have spent at least 25 years since we last heard of him at the end of chapter 2. He arrives at the Jordan River. The Nazarene has come from Galilee to Judea. There's so much involved in each of these names. And Jesus is getting prepared to begin his public ministry as the Messiah. But first, there are some things he has to take care of. Now, we would love to be, receive more details. Because this journey that Jesus took, that took him from Galilee down to the Jordan River, was more than 70 miles over very rough terrain. We're not told what route he took. We're not told what cities he passed through. We're not told what he, what he accomplished or who he saw along the way. So what was the motivation? 
because there was a definite purpose. And we are told in the text what the purpose was. He came to be baptized by John. Think of the amazing statement that is. This was not an accident. This was not happenstance. It was intentional. Right from the get-go, as Jesus makes his appearance in Matthew 3, he shows that he will always follow the ways of the Father and do what the Father commands. So he is coming not to scrutinize John the Baptist, not to judge him like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He came to obey and to be baptized. And so John says, how can this be? John would have prevented him, notice the word, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come and you come to me. Now, as near as I can tell, this is the only direct encounter that we have recorded in the New Testament between John and Jesus. So we really don't know all the amount of time they would have spent together growing up, how much they knew each other, how much time they spent in each other's presence. We have the occurrence when they're both in the wombs of their mother, and John the Baptist rejoices reacts to being in the presence of the lord jumps for joy but we don't have other encounters that we find in the scriptures except here directly where here they are face to face so we should pay attention to what is happening between these two important figures in the history of redemption our text says that john would have prevented him how would it change our meaning if we understand that the root of this word means to forbid how would the text read he wanted to forbid Jesus from doing this. It sounds a bit audacious to us. But I think we learn something from John as he does this. He recognizes his role in place before Jesus. He recognizes that he is the lesser one, that Jesus is the greater one, that Jesus is the one who is more powerful, the one that John had just said was coming. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals and carry them. How can I baptize you? This one who is called Emmanuel, God with us has come to save his people from their sins. So John understands he needs to stay in his lane, so to speak. And so he tries to forbid Jesus from being baptized. He recognizes that he should be baptized by Jesus, not the other way around. And this, we don't know how long this conversation would have gone on, but there's an emphasis on the personal pronouns, I and you and me and you. He, he recognizes his role. As, Look, this doesn't seem right. He shows his place. He knows his role. He shows humility. As Dr. D.A. Carson puts it, John had difficulty baptizing the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. Now he has trouble baptizing Jesus because his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. And so we have intention and confrontation. But then we have the reason to fulfill all righteousness. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But how long did it take for John to recognize Jesus? Was there a line of people waiting to get baptized that John would baptize? Was Jesus standing in line to be one of them? We don't know. We'll find out one day. But for now, we just know that somehow John makes it clear that this baptism was for the confession of sin, for purification, for preparation for a new age that was coming in God's plan of salvation. But what sin had Jesus committed that he needed to be baptized? Of course, we know the answer. None. He could not sin. He did not sin. He would not sin. Or he could not be the Redeemer. He could not be the Messiah. But he goes through and is baptized anyway. Why? 
Well, notice his response. He says, do this for now. And there's an emphasis on the word now. It's a key word. Now is John's hour. Now is John's time. The time of preparation for the Messiah. John has been sent by God for this hour. This is that time of preparation. It's almost as if for a moment, Jesus becomes the disciple of John and following that way. Of course, it leads to a much greater hour, the hour of Jesus. And that hour is about to begin where over the next three years, Jesus will complete all that is necessary to accomplish the redemption of his people. But for now, he says, let it be so to fulfill all righteousness. I think there's a few other angles we can look at this, but we'll just briefly do so. I think it's also for Jesus to obey the Father. And, And let me explain. John has been sent by God to be a prophet. And a prophet gives commands from God Commands that are expected to be answered and and responded to by the people of God. And Jesus is modeling for us that he will always obey what the Father wants. And so because now in this, this period of preparation, getting ready for this new age, the command is repent and be baptized. Jesus will obey the command to be baptized. But what did he have to repent of? Well, nothing, but he would also get baptized to identify with the people. He identifies with the very ones he came to save. That's often the meaning of baptism, identification with the people of God. The people of God for their part, the nation of Israel for its part, needed to repent. Jesus came as part of the nation. He would identify with the people that he came to save. But he will show and is showing, and as we've just sung, that he is ultimately the the new Adam, the new Moses, the new Isaac, the new David. And if he was to be the representative, if he was to be the savior of the people, he would have to go and live among them. And that's why the incarnation is so important. He came and lived among us. He came to identify with those he came to save. And that theme is found all all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, it's found all throughout the New Testament. It's one of the pinnacles of Christianity that God became man or sent Jesus to live among us so that being truly man and truly God, he could be the intermediary and the bridge between men and God. And so he had to identify with us. And look at what Paul said as he wrote to the church in Corinth. For our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see the identification that Jesus had to take on, had to take on not only being fully human, but taking on our very real sin, that we might be made righteous before a holy God. So as Jesus is being baptized himself, it's a symbol of what he came to do, to purify the people from their sin and to be a sacrifice for sin as the ultimate Nazarene, the ultimate rejected one, the ultimate despised one, and to fulfill all prophecy. Listen to what Isaiah recorded in in, in chapter 53 about the Messiah. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge Shall the righteous one, the Messiah, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We see the fullness of the messianic ministry there of dying for sinners, interceding on their behalf, taking their place to be punished for sin so that they might be declared righteous before a holy God. Jesus will obey the Father in all things and he will fulfill the plan of God for all things as it's revealed in the law and the prophets. And so John, knowing with whom he is engaged, agrees and baptizes Jesus. And then we get to the baptism itself, the blessed baptism. This baptism, as we've said, was not a baptism of salvation at that time, but of preparation. And so Jesus is baptized now by John and promises to baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit, which happens at the moment that we believe, and then will send his people out at the end of Matthew to teach and make disciples and baptize them all around the world. Now, we'll talk a little bit this morning about baptism. But for now, we'll just summarize what we believe about baptism. That is an outward sign of an inward grace. Those whom God has regenerated, who are born again by the Spirit of God, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, get baptized as they identify that they belong to Christ, that he is the one who has forgiven their sins, that he is the one who has borne the wrath of God. And so baptism, among other things, is a public identification with Christ. We confess him before men, that he is our Lord and Savior. Obeying the Lord's command, he said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you do not confess me before men, if you are ashamed of me, then I will not confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Baptism in this outward sign of an inward grace signifies what Christ has done for us and what has happened to us as we identify with Christ. That we died with Christ and went down under the waters. Waters symbolizing judgment in many places throughout the scriptures. And then rising from the judgment of sin to newness of life. And so his death, his burial... His resurrection become ours as we're identified with him. And that is our newness of life. So it does not produce any type of magic. Baptism is not a magical act. It's a picture of salvation. An act of obedience to our Lord and our public worship to him that we belong to him. As Jesus identifies with those he came to save, he is baptized, acting out for them what he will do in full. And what they must then do as his followers in being baptized, denying themselves and living for him. So what happens then as this baptism takes place? Some really exciting things. You think about the history of redemption. You think about what God is doing. The heavens opened. Now that doesn't happen every day. We might wish it would. Well, maybe we wouldn't wish that it would. Right? But the heavens opened, as the text says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. When this phrase, the heavens were open, is used in the Old Testament and even in the New, it talks about a a new revelation that is being given. And so we see it in places like Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 64 and John 1 and Revelation 4. It's like there's a veil being pulled back, and we're given a little glimpse of what is happening in the heavenlies. And this is God's doing. He's the one that opens the heavens. And he speaks to the one who will bridge the gap 
between the earth and the heavens. Direct communication is taking place of what heaven thinks about what is happening on earth. And then the spirit came down. Sorry, I'm a little behind in my PowerPoint. And the, the spirit came down. And he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, we know and believe that the Holy Spirit was involved in every aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. And we'll see different mentions of the Holy Spirit of God all throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew. He was active and present at the time of the conception and birth of Jesus. He was active at the time of his ascension. He was active during each point along the way in perfect harmony with Jesus. So what we have here is not Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit as if he hadn't had a relationship with the Holy Spirit before. What we see here is the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him at the beginning of his messianic ministry. We see the fulfillment of prophecy. Look at Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus at this time and will lead him through his earthly ministry, and this is a public sign, as it were, that he is now anointed as the Messiah. But for John the Baptist, this was a moment of revelation. Because in John 1, he said, I did not know who the Messiah was, and I was told I would not know until I saw the Holy Spirit come upon him. So John himself had to grow in his understanding of who Jesus really was. But now he knows. But he still has to learn. Just like the apostles were with Jesus, and they knew a lot of things about Jesus, and they knew Jesus, yet they had to continue to grow in their knowledge, did they not? We see them making silly mistakes and asking silly questions even after the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know what? That gives me hope. Because I've been walking with the Lord a long time, and I still make silly choices and make silly decisions and say silly things, and I still have to grow. I'm so glad we have these examples of God's mercy and grace poured out on even the apostles. And we have that Holy Spirit to continue to teach and try to, to of prod and move and help and guide so that we become more like Christ. Well, this, the Spirit coming upon Jesus like a dove has different levels of significance. One of them is the dove was a clean animal. It was a, seen as a pure animal. It's a symbol of purity. This is the pure Spirit of God that has come upon the Messiah who will be the Messiah and live out his ministry under the dependent power of the Holy Spirit in purity and in hope. But the, the, spirit, the, the dove is also a sign of peace. John was expecting a violent overthrow, a fiery judgment. The dove is a symbol that Jesus has come to bring peace between men and God. That we're in this age of grace, an age of peace where the gospel is offered and is to be taken to the four corners of the earth whereby we make disciples, we baptize them, we teach them because there is an age of judgment or a time of judgment that is coming. And then at times the prophets referred to Israel as a dove. And here we have one who is the true and ideal Israelite. 
who has the favor of God, who has the blessing of the Spirit, who will bring peace between God and his people who are at enmity with him because of their sin. So we have the heavens open, the Spirit has come down, and then the Father spoke. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we won't take the time this morning, but I want you to think about these three words, my beloved Son. We spent some time this week thinking about the importance of those three words and how they make all the difference in the world, both for time and for eternity. So in summary, what do we see here then at the baptism of Jesus? We see our Trinitarian faith. Notice that all three members of the Godhead, all three members of the Trinity are present at the baptism of Jesus. And so what is it that we affirm about the Trinity? Well, we affirm that in the one essence that is God, there are three persons who are equally divine with all the privileges and powers of deity. And I know it's hard for our finite minds to wrap around that, but that's how God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself as one what and three who's. One essence, one God who has revealed himself in three persons that are eternal, that are divine, that possess the power and privileges of deity. The doctrine of the Trinity is difficult to understand, but it is necessary to be saved because we need a God-man who can save us, who can bridge the gap between God and men. And what we have here as well is, is by the members of the Trinity showing up, they're showing that God, all members of the Godhead are always involved in all of the important events of creation and redemption. They were all active and present in creation. They're all active and present now, if you will, in the new creation brought in by Jesus. Because in Jesus, all that was lost in Adam will be redeemed and restored. And so, of course, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will be involved. This renewal, ultimate renewal that will result in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness reigns must involve the active participation and perfect community and communion of the three members of the Holy Trinity. So what this does is, because we have folks around us and throughout church history that deny the doctrine of the Trinity, is this one scene of the baptism of Jesus destroys the heresy of modalism and Unitarianism. These doctrines say, among other things, that sometimes God appears as the Father, sometimes He appears as the Son, sometimes He appears as the Spirit, or there's only one God who sends out two sub-gods, okay, and we say, a plague on your house. Did that teach you? Because God has revealed himself as one God who has revealed himself eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll see more as we move to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, if we have the three persons of the Trinity that are mentioned, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's interesting that we've now added a third name concerning the Sonship of Christ. The opening verse of the Gospel of Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of Abraham, the son of David, and now he's the son of God. He is the fullness of the promises that will be fulfilled in the nation and in the nations. 
that God sends his son into the world. So after we have the blessed baptism, we get to my beloved son. Some of this will be a summary of what we've already said. But I want us to be able to walk away from this passage saying, I know what it is, and I'm able to share with others what is there. Because there's so much hope and truth and joy in just these two verses. So first we see the Spirit's anointing. We have talked about that. But we need to remind ourselves that as Jesus is at the cusp of his public ministry to fulfill the plan and the, of God and bring salvation to his people, the Holy Spirit descends upon him to guide and empower him at every step in his ministry. The good news for us today is that as the Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus to fulfill the plan of God, Jesus has said that all those who believe in him will also, at the moment of their conversion, receive the Holy Spirit of God, who will indwell with them forever. It's found in places like Joel chapter 2 and Ezekiel 36. There are promises that are there that will be fulfilled. And if you are in Christ today, the Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit guides you. The Holy Spirit wants you to understand the word of God because, after all, he's the author. And the Holy Spirit will continually work in your life that you will become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will walk in perfect, intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God at every moment through his earthly sojourning. And after he has the Spirit's anointing, we also see he has the Father's approval. Three times in the Gospel of Matthew, God speaks audibly from the heavens. And all three times point people to Jesus. And here he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Again, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I put my favor on him. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God would use the language of sonship to talk about those upon whom he would put his favor. But here, the early readers, the early listeners of what John is saying and what is experienced here certainly would have had scripture coming to mind about how what came before would be a sign and shadow of what was to come later. And we sang about it in the song before we, we spent our time in the Word. We won't take time to read them in depth, but we can find places in all three parts of the Old Testament, in the law the Psalms and the prophets that point to a coming one who will be the son of God, who will have the fullness of favor of God. In Genesis 22, Abraham is commanded to take Isaac up the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. But he's delivered. But centuries later, there would be another son of Abraham, the ultimate son of Abraham, who would walk up the mountain, the same mountain, now known as Calvary, and who would be the sacrifice. The beloved son of Abraham, foreshadowing and pointing forward to a greater beloved son, who would be the ultimate son of Abraham. In Psalm 2, the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed, wanting liberation from any limits to their sins. And in response, we're told that God just laughs in heaven at the puny efforts of men. And says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And in verse 8 it says, the Messiah will inherit all the nations. And it ends with, kiss the son, lest he perish in his way. 
Jesus is that ultimate son who will inherit the nations and rule as king over them with an iron rod. And Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And as the spirit comes upon Jesus, it's a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah saw, that the Messiah would be anointed and the favor of God would be upon him. The father is pleased with the son with whom I am well pleased. So for 30 years, Jesus has lived in relative obscurity in a small town, in a small area of Galilee, but he's been fulfilling the law. He's been fulfilling righteousness. And now as he approaches the time of his public ministry, the father looks upon him and announces from heaven and says, this one is my son. I'm pleased with him. My favor is upon him. This one, who in the words of the prophet Isaiah in verse, 55, uh, verse 5 of chapter 53 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And then later on in chapter 53 of Isaiah, it will say it pleased the Lord to crush him. The pleasure of God upon his son is this is the one, not only upon whom is my favor, but will be the focal point of how I will save sinners, including punishing them, punishing him for their sins. So we have the beloved son. Now, I would like to take just a brief detour at this point because later this spring, we want to have a baptism service and give an opportunity for those who have not yet followed the Lord in the waters of baptism to obey and to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and to be baptized as a sign of their identification that that work of grace has already operated in your lives. But maybe for those of us that are already baptized, it's a good time to review and reflect what did baptism mean and kind of give a report card on how we're doing in our walk of obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. So what is the meaning of baptism? Well, briefly put, baptism is an act signifying salvation. Baptism does not save. Whatever type of baptism or mode that has been used, it's, it does not save. It indicates that salvation has taken place. When we look at the pattern in the New Testament, we're told to repent and believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. This is something that believers perform. When believers come to faith in Christ in the New Testament, they go and get baptized and because we believe it's an act that is signifying salvation in this church we practice baptism by immersion because we believe that it symbolizes our death with christ our judgment under the sin with christ who bore our judgment and as we come up out of the waters then we believe that that's a symbol of our resurrection with christ and so it's our confession that we died with christ we were buried with christ we rose with christ we will live with Christ. It's an act signifying salvation. Baptism is also an act of obedience to Christ. He simply says it. Do it. And so we need to do it. But I have to confess in my own life, it took me a few years before I obeyed the Lord in this command. Clearly had a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, was growing in grace and my love for the word, but was confused about baptism. Saw Christians fighting over the meaning of baptism. And I waited eight years 
to my shame as a believer in Jesus Christ before I got publicly baptized. Don't do that. The Bible commands us to repent, to believe, and to be baptized. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. It is a command. Thirdly, it's an act of identification with Christ. In our baptism, we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We believe what Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he has risen from the dead, you will be saved. And we confess that is true. We believe that we now belong to Christ. He has purchased us. And the very bodies and lives that we have are to be used for him. Therefore, he calls us in 1 Corinthians 6, honor God with your body. In our identification with Christ, we say we're part of God's family. That he is our one father who has brought us into his one family that has different representations around the world and what we call the local church. But we're part of the one family of God. And in baptism and our identity, we believe that we're in union with Christ. And so whether you've been baptized or not, ask yourself the question today. To go back to the moment when you met the living God. Or the season of life where you met the living God. And you were saved from your sin. Can you see markers in your life that indicate growth? Growth in obedience, growth in understanding the word of God, growth in joy and the fruit of the spirit. Are you more in love with Christ today than you were then? Are you more obedient to Christ today than you were then? Do you have more of a desire to please Christ than you did then? That's the normal growth pattern for Christians. Growth is expected because there's new life, there's new birth, the spirit has been given and the spirit works in the ones that he has saved. Now, of course, there's bumps and bruises along the way. There's ups and downs along the way. There's valleys and hilltops along the way. But is the overall pattern one of growth? That's the desire for everyone who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ. But getting back now to the Gospel of Matthew, as we wrap up our time in chapter 3, the scene is now set for the next major move in the life of Jesus. Israel was led out of Egypt and passed through the waters. Jesus has been led out of Egypt, and now he passes through the waters. After passing through the waters, Israel would wander the wilderness for 40 years, but have a pattern of disobedience and rebellion. We'll see next week that Jesus will come out of the waters and wander the wilderness for 40 days in perfect obedience and trust. And we'll look at that in more detail next week. Jesus is picking up the pieces, and he is perfectly performing where Israel failed. But as he will enter his public ministry, he will pass through that period of testing. The beloved son, who has the testimony of the father and the anointing of the spirit, must undergo a season of testing by the enemy who will question his sonship and question his obedience to God. And what that tells me is that obeying God And doing exactly what God has called us to do and walking in faithfulness does not mean we will be free from a life of suffering, of disappointment, of difficulty. It might be that it is our obedience that leads us into a time of trial and testing. Because Jesus is preparing us to become more like him. Jesus will walk that path before us as he goes into the wilderness and endures temptation for 40 days and holds fast 
before he goes off into his public ministry. And so as we prepare then for Jesus going through a time of testing in the wilderness, what are some lessons we can take from our time in the word today? Well, the first one is in response to the gospel, we are to repent and be baptized. If you've not been baptized, please see me after the service today. We will have a baptism class coming up, and we will have a baptism service later in the spring. It'll be a time of great celebration, remembering what God has done for us in Christ. This baptism symbolizes newness of life. And as Jesus obeyed the Father, so now he empowers us to obey him. That we might walk in the newness of life. And because Jesus fulfilled all right, there's so much we could say at this point. Because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us, because he did that, he now commands us to live righteously for him. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Apply the truth of the scriptures to your life, knowing that we're accepted in Christ fully. But because we're fully accepted, he says, okay, now I want you to become like Christ, and I'm going to work in it so it happens. And rejoice and give thanks to the Spirit of God. The Spirit who empowered Jesus also empowers us. The same Spirit that led Jesus through every moment of his life and dwells his people today. That's why we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, walk in the Spirit's power. And obey the word of the Lord and do what it says. And then we have a responsibility, and that is tell others that judgment is coming, but that eternal life is available now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of turning to the Lord. So as we prepare to see Jesus go through the challenges of the wilderness next week, let's remember that he is fulfilling all righteousness for us. As a result, we can go out and live joyously for him in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let us pray. Father, as we think about your word and as we think about who Jesus is and as we think about the example that he set before us, we are thankful that we are in good hands if we are in Christ. But Father, your love for us is such and your power for us is such that you don't want to leave us like that. You want to draw us closer into intimacy with you and cause us to become more like Christ. And would you burn that desire into our hearts that we would desire holiness, that we would desire the fruit of the Spirit, that we would desire to be faithful to you, that we would desire to love you, and that we would be available to be instruments in your hand to show people around us who you are. And then, Father, will you gently remind us that it's ultimately all about you and what you've done in Christ. And so let our hearts be thankful that we can trust you, thankful that you will give us more and more victory, and thankful that you will also keep us dependent upon you so that you get all the glory. To that end, we pray this week, Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. stand and sing with us as we close out our service. Lord, I come 
Please stay around for a fellowship meeting that will take place at 11 a.m. In the meantime, I hope you can get some good fellowship in with one another. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Let us go in peace. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.